series within the series. How many of you know theology matters? What you believe about God matters. The, the whole point of us going through the Gospel of Mark for almost two years now, this August it'll be two years, is the idea that our theology, our life imitates our theology. What you believe about God is reflected in everything that you do, say, think, all of those things. If you really believe God is just and God is love and God forgives, well, you're going to try to be loving because he's been loving to you. You're going to try and be just because you've tasted his justice and so on. And so that's one reason we're doing this. But also looking at this section, we're, we're looking at what's called eschatology. That word comes from the eschaton, the end of time, and ology, of course, the study of. It's the study of what comes next. And we've talked about this a few times already. But one of the controversies that seems to come up is whenever you are looking at these things, people start to say, well, hold on a second. When is the, the second coming exactly? And we're not trying to set dates or anything like that. There have been groups who've done that in the past. And usually, well, so far they've gotten it wrong, right? I remember back in 2012, there was this group who used the Mayan calendar. And I think he claimed to use the, the book of Jeremiah. And he had it figured out when, when Jesus was coming back. And he had all these people fooled. It was on our local news. They were, they were pulled up selling all their belongings out of the trunks of their car. They, just, they were just getting ready to go so they could give him more money. Hmm, wonder how that works, right? They give this guy more money so he could advance this news that Jesus was definitely coming back. And I think it was 2012. Well, you know, the billboards were up and all this stuff. He was coming back and then he didn't come back. And well, we don't want to do that. But we do have that question. When is the second coming of Christ? A few years back, I was in a different church. I was not credentialed at the time. I, I still have my Bible college education. I'll have that till I die. But I was in a group. There was about four other pastors in this group, credentialed ministers, and a handful of parishioners. And they, they brought in this guy who was a bigger name person in our district. And, and he was a real eschatology professor type of pastor. Like he was very passionate about these things. And, and he came in and he lectured. He talked about the seven-year tribulation. I mean, it was about two hours this guy talks. And so we had some time for discussion after him. Somebody I thought was actually very intelligent uh, surprised me a little bit with, with one of their questions. He says, so when exactly does Jesus come back? And I was like, did you not pay attention to anything this guy just said? We don't know. He goes, no, 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 no. Okay, so there's the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And they're the same thing. No, they're not the same thing. Well, I don't know. Sometimes you read the Bible, it sounds like one, at one point Jesus is coming back. And then another time, it seems like he's coming back at a different time. Like there's two different things there. And I mean, I looked at, I had, I, the speaker at this point had, had joined our table and I must have looked at the guy like he'd just grown a third eyeball out of his head. And I said, that's because there are two different events. There's the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And the guy looks over at the speaker like, who does he think he is? And he goes, well, yeah, Jeff's right, actually. That's, that's how it works. And so he, he felt really dumb. I felt really smart. And now I get to share that with my church family. 
So I look like the hero, but really I, you know, I could have been just as wrong. I, I, I wasn't, you know, I was kind of rusty on my eschatology at the time, but we do have to understand that there's the end when Christ does come back and there is the rapture. Now we're not the first and my friend wasn't the first to get that wrong. Okay, and actually Thessalonica, they thought they got that wrong. If you read the, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, they thought they'd missed the rapture. In fact, the fact that they thought they missed it is good evidence that this was a message the early church must have taught, that there was a rapture because they were being persecuted so hard they thought they'd entered into the seven-year tribulation at some point. And so Paul writes to them and he tries to comfort them and he says to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Now he's descending from heaven, but he doesn't touch down. That's the key. Okay? With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. You will not find rapture in your church, in your Bible. Sorry. You better find the rapture in your church. But you won't find the word rapture in your Bible because it's, it's not there. But the word caught up, rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now he's talking about the church as it was prior to the tribulation, prior to the rapture. Okay. That's Jesus coming down. I like to call it a bullet burn of earth. Because if you've ever been shot at, you might have gotten a bullet burn where this just got really close, but you didn't actually get shot. Okay? That's, uh, if we had more police in our congregation, they would be saying amen right now. All right? Or especially former SWAT guys. But this is referring to the rapture. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, that's what we believe. That's what we call it. Of course, we've talked about other beliefs and things throughout this series. But Zechariah 14.4, on the other hand, he says, On that great day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And I've quoted this passage a few times throughout this as well. That is definitely pointing to the fact that that is the second coming. Okay? The battle of Armageddon, when Christ's feet touch down... That's the second coming. Sometimes we refer to the rapture as the second coming. We do so incorrectly, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. I've done it before. But that's not the second coming. That's the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the dead. The second coming is at the end of the seven-year tribulation when his feet touch down. And our text today talks about that event. It talks about when he finally comes to establish his kingdom. And so if you will stand with me this morning, we're going to read. It's very, a very short passage this morning. And I'm actually preaching out of my LSB Bible. I, I was going to preach out of the NASB because this Bible was breaking on me, but uh, it, I glued it. So, hey. All right. Verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Praise God. That is God's word. Amen. Amen. May be seated this morning. I've given this the very original title. I said this last week. This joke will get old very soon. Signs of the Times Part 3. Look up in the sky 
How many of you have ever, I, I used to watch the old Superman, car, or not cartoon, but the Superman with George Reeves. And at the very beginning, there was chaos in the streets. There's gangsters. There's a mad scientist going, you know, all these different things. And someone stops amid all the chaos. And they go, look up in the sky. And some other person says, it's a bird. And someone else says, no, it's a plane. Yeah, you've heard it. No, it's Superman. Right? And there's going to come a day where the whole world's going to be in chaos. And someone's going to say, hey. Look up in the sky. And that's, that's when he's coming back. And I don't mean Clark Kent. I mean Jesus Christ of Nazareth who died on a cross for our sin, who rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father. What a beautiful day. And in that time that he comes back, that is the second coming, and that comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation when all hope seems lost look for the return of the king when all hope seems lost when every ounce of hope has gone remember Christ's return is on the horizon that's the one thing if you take nothing else away from this because we're looking towards the rapture but the people in this time in this text they're looking towards the second coming both both of us can say when all hope seems gone, look to the horizon because Christ's arrival is coming. I think of Lord of the Rings. I almost wanted, I really wanted to title this message Return of the King. Because if you've ever known Lord of the Rings, I know Dale and Daniel love that. That's the last book. And Tolkien, who wrote it, was a Christian. And isn't it funny when all hope seems lost? The king sits on his throne and that's when the ring is destroyed and evil is completely vanquished. And I just think, man, he got something right. Many of us forget the king's coming and evil's days are numbered. When we study the last days and we see how it plays out, even though we shouldn't, so many times we begin to be negative about those things. That's the sad truth about it. But really, we shouldn't. It should be a time of hope. It should be a time of joy. And, and I know not many of us always feel that way. But when we think about it, and we, and we start to really worry about it, maybe even, there are going to be those who, who are going to die and not know Christ. There are going to be loved ones who we've preached to and, and, let's be honest, nagged to come to church and tried to get them to to come and be a part and, and, and trust Christ, and they're not going to do it. They're going to they're slip into eternity. And when we think about that, and when we think about that some of them might become Christians after we're raptured, but yet they're going to suffer and face torment and face tribulation, well, sometimes it gets to be a lot. But our text today makes it very clear. In the shadow of doubt, in the shadow of worry, in the shadow of anxiety, we can look towards that hope, that horizon, and know Christ is coming and feel new joy all over again. Because in the ultimate scheme of everything, we win. We win eventually. We may not uh, win on this earth. We may lose. We may not be guaranteed another great awakening, another revival, another winning moment as long as we live. 
But we're not called to be winners in the temporary. We are called to win that eternal, ultimate victory. Because we are in Christ, and Christ is the ultimate victor. This has actually been a hot-button topic. And, and I don't know if you've, many of you have paid attention to this, but it's kind of interesting. As we've entered this series the last few weeks, all across America, other pastors are, they're not copying me. I'm not taking credit for this. But interestingly, they're starting to talk about eschatology. They're starting to talk about Christ's return. They're starting to talk about when exactly and how exactly it's going to happen. And they're starting to clarify their stances on these things. And recently, John MacArthur in his Grace Community Church, he stood in front of his church and he said, we do not win here. Made it very clear. And it became this huge, all through social media, became this huge topic. And another pastor by the name of Jeff Durbin, who, uh, nothing against Jeff Durbin, but he doesn't agree. He's a post-millennialist. And he stood in his church and said, we do actually win down here. It just takes a while. And they went back and forth. And you know what all I could think about is, who cares? Christ is being preached. His return is being preached. Hope is being given to the church once again. Because I'll tell you what, the last few years, hope has been kind of hard to find. Isn't it funny, 2016, 2017, you'd go back, you listen to some of these bigger mainstream preachers, and what did, they, what did a lot of them preach? Don't fear. We don't have any reason to fear. And then COVID happened, and all of us shut down our churches except a few. And we had to actually put our money where our mouth is. Rubber met the road. We had to live without fear. And as soon as we could, we opened the doors back up. We tried to get things going again, and many pastors feared and took government loans and things like that. But now we're looking at the end times again, and hope is rising in the church. You know, one thing I, I've noticed about uh, eschatology and revival preaching, they go hand in hand. When we start looking to the return of Christ, churches start to catch fire. They, they start to get excited. Because it becomes very real to them. We are living in the end times. So we need to start acting like we're living in the end times. Amen? Amen. And so that's, that's kind of fascinating to me that we're seeing this. And, and, and yet, we, we still turn on the news and we see the, the direction the, the nation is going. We, we see some victories in the Supreme Court. But then we see the executive branch double down on other things and all these political things happening. Well, the church, the, the Christian is not to live for politics. We live for Christ. And so in the midst of this, we just still, we see all this stuff happening and we still say, but we know he's coming back. We know he's coming soon. And we're going to live for that. And I want to take as many people with me. I don't know about you. I want to take as many people with me to heaven as I possibly can. And so when things get hard, when I start to get anxious about the future of our nation, about the future of our church, about the future of our community, things like that, you know what? Look to the sky. Because his return is on the horizon. It's coming. We look back at verse 24 and it reads that, like this. It says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The very first word in this passage is actually very important. It's not the Greek word chi, which, sometimes, which usually gets translated and. Sometimes it gets translated but, not very often. Sometimes it gets translated yet. But here is the Greek word Allah, 
which means but. Jesus is shifting gears in his, his uh, discourse with the disciples. But in those days, in those days being the days of the Antichrist, those days of the abomination of desolation we looked at last week, those days of rebellion, of falling away, the days where the false prophets are a dime a dozen, the days the false messiahs line the streets, and so on. Those days, of course, Jesus is using parallel language here. He said this earlier. He said, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. He's referring to the days of the great tribulation. He says in verse 19, for those days will be a time of tribulation. We know those days. We looked at those days last week in the text and in the message. But Jesus is also, in, in doing this, he's using Old Testament language. He's kind of borrowing for Jer- from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3.16, it shall be in those days, he, is how he speaks. And then Jeremiah 33.15-16, he begins to be even more specific. He says, in those days... And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to branch forth, and he shall do justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in security. And this is the name by which she'll be called Yahweh is our righteousness. You see, Jesus is he's borrowing from Jeremiah, Joel, Zechariah, all these prophets who use this, these terms. And he's saying those days were days of suffering, but there are days of hope still coming. Days of good. In those days, the day of the, the days of the great tribulation. And it is the great tribulation. We know that because he says in those days after that tribulation. Now some manuscripts will say after that suffering. This is a very specific time of suffering. This is the great tribulation. That tribulation. That's how we know that Christians are always going to have times where we have to suffer. Where we face persecution, depression, divisiveness, all these things. The, the pressing down, the, that's the Greek word, thalipsis. That it's hurting the church, but actually it's growing the church. He's speaking of that specific three and a half year great tribulation. It's very specific which one, because there are many throughout the church age. But specifically, during this time, he says, the sun will be darkened. Matthew tells us immediately, but immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Of course, if the sun is darkened, what's that mean? There's no light. Things are going to get cold. It's going to be more than just a simple solar eclipse. It's not just going to get cold. We are going to see later that it's going to get very hot. It's going to disrupt so many things. It's going to take place in the sky above the entire earth. The whole world will see it. And of course, if the sun is dark, it only makes sense that the moon will also be dark. Because what's the moon do? It reflects the light of the sun. So if the sun goes out, the moon's going to go out. Now, people back in Jesus' day wouldn't have known this necessarily. Maybe they hadn't quite figured that out. Jesus, who created both the sun and the moon, knows how they work. And so he's saying, hey, if the sun goes out, by the way, the moon also is going to lose its light. This is going to impact crops. It's going to impact work. It's going to impact the way people live their lives. And again, Jesus reminds us this is not something that should be new to us. This is actually 
Something that the Old Testament prophets predicted time and again. Isaiah 13, 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth. Their light, the sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel 32, 7, when I extinguish you, I'll cover the heavens and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud. The moon will not give its light. Joel 2, 10, but... Uh, before them, the earth trembles, the heavens quake, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. Later in Revelation 6.12, I looked, he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. There's all these things. This is a sign. The times are drawing very close to the end. As the sixth seal goes, we see also the fourth bowl judgment. Something familiar, I read this last week. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. It was given to it to scorch men with fire. That's how I said it's cold, but it's also going to be hot. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the, thr- on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. This is a time of intense anguish. Not just for the Christian, for the whole world. It's the end of the tribulation, it's closing time. Revelation 9, 6 says, In those days men will seek death and will never find it. They'll long to die and death flees from them. Everything in our little corner of the universe begins to fall into chaos. God is taking powerful action. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, refers to all of this. He, he's warning, even then, he's speaking of eschatology as he teaches and preaches to the, to the Jewish people, he says in Acts 2, 19-21, I'll put wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But there is hope. Peter f- concludes, he says, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So even in the midst of all this stuff, God makes sure he He says, but don't lose hope. It's like he slips it in at the end. All this bad stuff's happening, but trust me. But follow me. Give me your heart. Give me your life. Church, never forget this. When hope seems gone, when things seem dim or dark, when the sun itself refuses to shine, we need only look at the sky for his return is on the horizon. He goes on in verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and powers that are in heaven will be, and the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. Now, normally I would connect these two verses because they're so closely related. And in Matthew, it is one passage, but I think it's interesting to break these down and see there's even more stuff that comes out of this. The stars will be falling. How many of you remember Henny Penny? Right? The sky is falling. The sky is falling, right? Now this should come as no shock if you've studied the end times if you've looked at the last days at all revelation 6 the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs and was shaken by a great wind the sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places you know that tells us earth's gravity is going to get messed up there's a lot of things happening around the globe and in the sky 
Here's a, the famous Wormwood asteroid or comet or meteorite, whatever you want to call it. The third angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many, uh, many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood, by the way, is a bitter plant. It's a very bitter thing. And I don't know if there's a lot of significance to this, but I... I often will bring this up whenever looking at eschatology. It's something very fascinating to me. If you know a little bit of history, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. 1986, there was this little town that suffered a nuclear disaster called Chernobyl. You know what Chernobyl means in English? Wormwood. Now, some people will put on their, their tinfoil hats and they'll say, ah, see? See, God's already striking the earth with the wormwood. No, no, let's calm down. But how many of you know whenever a disaster begins to happen, many times we compare it to a previous disaster? And so my theory, and this is just a theory, you can run with this. You say, pastors lost his fruit loops, whatever, that's okay too. My theory is at some point during the tribulation, they're going to see this thing coming because we've got telescopes and things that can do that. And I think there's going to be this time where some news anchor goes, you know, it's going to cause devastation much on the level as Chernobyl. And they're going to start calling it the Chernobyl meteor as it comes and impacts the earth. And it's going to obviously have an even greater impact than Chernobyl did. But I think it's funny. That's how things typically get their names, right? Who would, who would want, and if they're in such rebellion to God, who would open up their Bible and say, well, we better call this Wormwood because God said, no, but it makes sense. They would say, well, it's, it's the Chernobyl meteor. I don't know. That's theory. Maybe I shouldn't preach that. Maybe I shouldn't teach that, but it's out there. I think it's fascinating coincidence. We can't really be sure, but like I said, it is just that. It's just a coincidence, possibly. Regardless of the names and things, Jesus is making it very clear to his disciples and to us that chaos has erupted in the skies above and on the earth below, and God allows this to happen at the end of time. It's been predicted. Isaiah 13, 13 says, I'll make the heavens tremble, the earth will shake from its place. Peter, also in 2 Peter, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be found out since all these things are to be destroyed in, the, in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the day of, the, of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. Even then, Peter's saying, these things are going to happen, but you stay holy, you stay faithful. This day of the Lord, this is something Peter brings up, and it's something that pops up now and again. It's not a specific day, by the way. It's a, it's a phrase used to describe the period of judgment upon the earth from God. There's some debate exactly as to when it begins, whether some say it began with the ascension of Christ and the start of the church age. That's possible. Most people believe it, it starts with the rapture or at least whenever God's wrath begins to pour out on the earth during that seven-year tribulation. The Old Testament prophets would see the final day of the Lord as that time of darkness and pain Jesus is referring to, a day when God acts in a way that vindicates his name. I think that's interesting. That was our worship this morning. He has, he's going to deal with his enemies. He's going to reveal his glory. When he does that, it's usually for his name to be glorified. He's ultimately, he's going to destroy this present world. We see that at the culmination of Revelation. 
The day of the Lord is actually more like days of the Lord. The time of tribulation is not just tribulation for the Christian. Like I said, it's for the whole earth. The day of the Lord refers to the end of the millennial kingdom as well. When the Lord establishes that new heavens and new earth. That's what's happening at the end of the tribulation, at the end of time that Christ is referring to. And the powers that are in heaven. Now this is interesting when he says this. The powers that are in heaven... Powers is sometimes translated as bodies, but that's not really a good translation. It, it, they, they do that to kind of insinuate the stars and the planets, but that's not really what the Greek is referring to there. Like I said, I don't think we should take that translation. If it's that sort of powers that are in heaven, it's the imagery we're actually supposed to get in our head is not that of Henny Penny, the, the stars are falling, at this point, we've, we've already had that. Stars have fallen. But now the powers, not the bodies, they are shaken. And if you have your Bible, if you have a reference Bible with the, the uh, parallel passages and things like that marked out, you might notice many translations hyperlink this verse back to Isaiah 34 verse 4. Well, what does that verse actually read? What's it say? And all the host of heaven will rot away, and the sky be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts will also wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. And again, some people say, well, that's just the stars. I don't think so. The sky being rolled up like a scroll is not the same as the powers of heaven shaking. That word shaken in the Greek is saluth esanthai, and it means to become distressed. Planets are inanimate objects. They're just giant rocks if we really boil it down, right? So they're not really, they don't really have cares. What does? Beings with consciousness. The word means literally distressed or shaking back and forth immensely. Well, I only act like that when I'm really scared or worried or something like that, right? Well, hang on, church. This is where it gets really good. The host of heaven will rot away. All their hosts will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. Church, this sounds to me like somebody's scared. Somebody's terrified. Someone who has for a long time held a position of power over the people of the earth. They're about to get what's coming to them and now they're nervous. Now they're shaking. Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And now where are they shaking in the heavenly places? Who's rocking back and forth? Who's withering? Who's rotting like a, a leaf it's the same person i think isaiah was talking about when he said how you have fallen from heaven O star of the morning son of the dawn you've been cut down to the earth you have weakened the nations but you said in your heart i'll ascend to heaven i will raise my throne above the stars of god and i will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north i will ascend above the heights of the clouds i will make myself like the most high nevertheless you will be brought down to sheol to the recesses of the pit those who see you will gaze at you they will carefully consider you saying is this the man who made the earth tremble who caused kingdoms to quake many people they read that they say well that's just to the king of babylon but i don't think it was the king of babylon that was here in that part 
I think there was somebody else present in that room, and we call him Satan. We call him Lucifer. We say he is the, that fallen angel. And I think as he heard that in the throne room of Babylon that day, he began to squirm. And he began to shake back and forth immensely because he knows his time is coming to an end. And that's what Jesus is referring to because on that day, the, the day of the Lord that we're reading about today, that, that limp worm, that old snake will begin to shake as he hears the war cry of heaven, as he hears the trumpets blast and the announcement will be made and, he, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. Hallelujah. The church should shout, even so, Jesus, come quickly. You see, I think he's telling us very clearly, it's going to be a time of persecution. It's going to be a time of pain. It's going to be a time of tribulation. But you know what? They know their days are numbered too. The old t-shirt used to say, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. This is why. He shakes. He doesn't want to hear it. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye, every eye, angel, demon, king, pauper, every eye from all of history will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen, John says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, and the Son of Man will come down. We've, we've looked at that title, Son of Man. It's used about 14 times in the book of Mark. It's a title Jesus took from the book of Daniel. It's a title reserved for the prophet of Israel. We see it in Ezekiel. He said to me, Son of Man, can these bones live? We've, we've talked about the Valley of Dry Bones before. And Ezekiel answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the great prophet. Just as much as he is the truest, highest king. And just as much as he is the highest priest that Hebrews tells us about. He occupies those three offices rightly to lead Israel and to rightly lead his church, prophet, priest, and king. And when he comes back, when he descends, he will come in the power of those three offices, priest, prophet, and king. And he's not just coming to say, oh, could you please leave my kids alone? He's a conquering king. He's a warrior. And he's had enough at that point. That's how Moses saw him. Moses said, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. And church, the king is coming. He's coming in the clouds. That's a divine attribute, by the way. He's not just coming as a priest of God. He's not just coming as a prophet of God. He's not just coming as a king before God, but as God himself. The clouds are symbolic of his divinity. We see it in Exodus. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'll come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. 
We see him in Isaiah 19. He's traveling on the, on the clouds. And listen to this. Listen to this. If you, if you doubt what I said before, listen to this description in Isaiah 19. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to G- Egypt. The idols of Egypt will shake at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The devil knows his time is drawing close. And he's shaking. And he's scared. There's this shaking and the demonic presence behind those idols. Paul talks about these idols as being demons. That's exactly what they are. And they should shake. Because the master, the Lord, the king of kings is on his way. Charles Wesley wrote of this event like this. He said, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, God appears on earth to reign. Amen. Church, you understand when he comes this time, not the rapture, when he comes and he steals away his church, not the first time when he comes as the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, This time when he comes, he's not coming as a lamb, he's coming as the lion. He's not coming as the suffering servant, he's coming as the risen master. He's not coming as some poor carpenter. He's coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he will strike down the nations as he raises up his kingdom. No longer will the Christian have to worry and feel stress and be concerned with their troubles, their fears, their anxiety, but look up in the sky. The king will return. And he's not done there. Verse 27, And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. He's going to send forth the angels. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the amillennial view is is that we're living in the kingdom era now and the amillennialists hold these aren't actually angels, but messengers, angelos, can actually be translated as messenger. But I think they misunderstand this. I think they vastly miss it here. They understand it to mean that Christ is sending forth people to preach the gospel. We've already been doing that at this point. It's already been done at that point. They would say, well, he's going to bring out the elect. He's going to bring the gospel. They're going to bring the gospel to Christ. In a spiritual sense, they're going to bring them to Christ. This is not what we see actually happening. It's clearly not how we interpret the text today. There's this little word that throws all that theory out the window. It's the word then. After he returns... Those who, during that seven-year tribulation, have put their faith in him. When his feet touch down, he's going to look. We're going to be with him in his presence, always, for eternity. But he's going to look to his angels. He's going to say, now, go get the rest of them. Go get my kids. Go get my kingdom. Go get my bride. Bring her to me. Because she's holy. She's been purified by the tribulation. And she stayed faithful to me. That word, then. It's amazing how when we read scripture, we can just pass up something so important. I do it myself. I'm not going to say I don't do that. It's it's human nature, but we have to be careful with that. 
And when we read it in the Greek, it's kai tote, and then he will send forth his angels. Jesus talks about this in other places. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay each one according to his deeds. So it will be, Matthew 13, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So they're doing more than just grabbing the Christians. They're passing out wrath, judgment. They're carrying out the king's orders. But they're going to gather the elect from the four winds. That's a way of saying from all around the world. From the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven, he says. That's interesting. That caught my eye. Furthest end of heaven. Why would they need to go that route? That's clearly talking about the skies. Why? Why would God send his angels through heavens to get Christians? Well, because since Jesus said these words, we've invented some stuff called airplanes. And sometimes Christians ride airplanes, even during the tribulation, probably. They're going to go get them from the heavens. Maybe there's a Christian astronaut out there on the Mars colony or something. I don't know. But that day, they're going to go. The point is, they're going to go gather the church together from everywhere. From the, from the farthest reaches possible. And it's very similar to when Israel was exiled and they were facing tribulation. They were suffering. But when they returned, they returned from all four corners of the earth. But, church, before we close, I'm going to start to move that direction. Before we do. If you're anxious today, remember these words of the we are exiles, by the way. We are resident aliens. That's what first Peter tells us. We are not living for this world. This world is not our home. And someday, like I said, either we're gonna die or we're gonna be raptured. And even during the rapture, if we're dead, we'll you'll rise first. Some of you will beat us there. Right? Or we might all be there together. I don't know when it's gonna happen. Maybe my grandkids will be like, hey, Grandpa, what took you so long? But that's coming. And we get so anxious. I, I, I've, I don't know how many people have come to me, Pastor, I'm really nervous. I'm really worried about this stuff I see in the news. I see these wars and rumors of wars. And You know what I'm going to tell you this morning is the same thing Israel was told by the prophet Jeremiah as they were going into exile. We're in exile. So build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Church, what he's saying is make the most of the time you've got. Don't live in fear. If, if it helps, plant a garden. If it helps... You know, go share Jesus. Be busy while you wait. Do not grow weary. Do not fear. The worst may come, but Christ is also on his way. And we can rejoice and know that his return is on the horizon. That he's coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. I said at the beginning of this message that there are a lot of people talking about eschatology lately, people who interpret some of these passages differently. That's fine. But either way, the message remains the same for the Christian. Christ is one day coming for his church. 
I'm going to ask Georgette to go ahead and come back and play, but it's for a minute. No matter what life throws at us, we can rejoice in knowing his return is imminent. But church, what will he find when he gets here? Will he find his church worried, afraid, cowering in the basement? Or will we be a praying church? Will we be a bride waiting on her groom? Will we be a worshiping church, an evangelizing church, a working church, a growing church? I pray that's what we are at Faith over the past four years. And by the way, I've been your pastor now for four years. As of yesterday, somebody's going, has it really been that long? Yes, four years. Praise God. But that's, that's what we've tried to instill. That's what we've worked for and tried to build as the culture of our church over the last four years, that we're a worshiping church, a praying church, an active church. Because like I said four years ago, the church that's not moving is probably dead. We don't want him to come back and find a dead church, do we? And even now, there's room for improvement. But today, we're going to close in worship. If you will, stand with us. Georgette's going to lead us. And I'm going to ask you today to do something. And those of you watching who are part of faith, you're watching this message later, I'm going to ask you to do something I've done almost every day for the past four years. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. I said this to another pastor. So this is what I pray every morning. He says, my mind does not work that way. <laughs> I'm finding more and more people's brains don't work like mine. It's probably a good thing. But on this, I would ask you to join me on this. For almost four years, I've prayed every morning, God, what else can I do to build your kingdom? What else can I do to build your church? Maybe it's what, what ministry would you have me join up with this fall? You know, we've needed nursery workers for four years. <laughs> Maybe some of you that you're saying, you know, it's time I join in, I help with that. Maybe you're saying, I want to help Mindy on Sunday mornings or, or I want to help with Wednesday night or whatever the case might be. Or, or maybe it's simply just, I need to share Jesus with the person who lives down the street. What else can I do, Lord, to build your kingdom? I'm a hammer in your hands. I'm a screwdriver in your hands. Now take me, use me, build your kingdom. Almost every day I've prayed that prayer and I'm asking you today, start praying that with me. And in four years, we'll see where we're at as God builds his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. Let's pray about this together. And then let's go forth and build the kingdom together. Amen?